Welcome to another Booch News podcast with Ian Griffin. So I'm here in Middlebury, Vermont, sitting down in the headquarters in the production facility for Aquavite with the founder, Jeff Weber, who's been a wonderful host so far. And I'm actually, for the first time, or maybe only the second time, doing a profile on site. So it's great to be here in Vermont in the fall season as the leaves outside are blaze of color. Uh, how's it going? It's great. It's really nice to have you here. Thanks for taking the trip out. We don't see too many uh, California visitors in Vermont, <laughs> so it's nice. Uh, nice yeah, to well, and my daughter's here for a month from New York, and my wife and I have taken the opportunity. So let's start like at the beginning. How did you get into kombucha? What was your journey? Where did it begin? Yeah, my journey is really a, a transition from the craft beer world uh, to trying to find something healthier to, that had sort of all the fermenting qualities that I loved about um, making excellent craft beer and uh, wanted to apply that to a healthier lifestyle. And when was that? When So when did you begin like uh, brewing at home or did you jump straight into commercial? I, uh, I was living in, in Portland, Oregon at the time, oh. working at a brewery. Uh, so I had lots of brewing equipment available to me. So uh, I, I took an old... Uh, 15 and a half gallon keg, cut the top off of it and started brewing kombucha uh, in the brewery. And that was probably in 2002. Um, and, it, you know, it was extremely new. There may be one brand on the market at that time. Um, GTs had maybe just crossed into Oregon from California. Mm. And uh, I had first discovered kombucha reading about it and then found somebody that had a had a culture and they shared with me and I started started brewing it and started sharing it with all the people at the pub that I was working at and found mm -hmm. that the beer drinkers had a palate for it mm -hmm. and my wife was going to school to become a naturopathic doctor that's why we were in Oregon and uh, certainly her crowd of, of friends and peers uh, were always looking for healthier options especially because naturopathic medicine is so focused on digestive health um, kombucha was a it was a great fit for them, and so it was neat to see how it pulled the two crowds together, and yeah. and we started making it in the basement of our house in Oregon and selling it, you know, growlers of it uh, straight from the keg, you know, yeah. super yeah. pungent, very strong vinegary kombucha, uh, and people were showing up, knocking on the door, and paying twenty dollars for a for a growler of kombucha. Yeah, well, that I mean, Oregon is one of the the hotbeds of kombucha and, and uh, you were there at the beginning. And so what brought you to Vermont? Is this your home state or? It's not my home state, but it, it's uh, the state that my wife and I uh, first began our relationship and had always intended to make a home. Um, and we, you know, Vermont's a very entrepreneurial state and mm -hmm. we figured that would be a great place to start businesses. So we had always aimed on coming back here uh, and kombucha became my vehicle for starting a starting business in Vermont. Um, and, uh, yeah, I joke because, you know, I left Oregon. I would have been the first kombucha brewer in Oregon probably by three years, three or four years. 
Uh, but we left to come to Vermont to, <laughs> to a tiny little town, uh, college town in, in Vermont, start a kombucha company. Yeah, I saw recently you made a comment on Instagram, I think, about how Vermont's a great state to start. What makes it so good? I mean, is it just the culture of entrepreneurship with the farms and the cheesemakers and the craft people? Yeah, I think it's a combination of, um, you know, Vermont um, welcomes a lifestyle of living off the land a little bit more. So, you know, in the 60s, you had a lot of the back to the landers moving here. Um, all at that time, those were like the academics leaving nice colleges and moving to Vermont and starting dairy farms. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it, it instilled, I think, at that period of time in Vermont, um, this idyllic sense of it's a great place to, to live and, and start a business. And certainly you saw it happen with the Ben and Jerry's and, right. and it becomes a beacon and, uh, and, and creates that culture. So what year, did, when was Aquavite founded in Vermont? Uh, so we moved here from Oregon in, in 05 and started Aquavite in, in the summer of 07. Okay, so it's, it's over, it's getting on for 13, 14, yeah. coming up 15 years. Yeah. And you've got, I mean, this is a very large facility, you know, it's not some little back office. I've been to a couple of kombucha brewers, one in the UK, who are in an industrial park, but it was like the size of a two-car garage. You've got quite a facility here. So what is your range today? And, and tell me more about, like, where you distribute and... That kind of thing. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a little bit of the evolution. So we, we did get started in the in the basement of our farmhouse um, at the farmers market, and at the time, I really thought that it was just going to be a small little cottage industry for me. Um, as we introduced my wife and got our um, naturopathic practice up and running, mm -hmm. uh, so we went to the farmers market with what we could make in the basement, and uh, quickly saw that there was a lot more demand for the product than, than I expected. And so we started growing. And at that time, we really had invested all of our money into starting the practice. And so we were really bootstrapping the kombucha, which led to some interesting decisions. One was to start selling kombucha on draft only. And uh, so we pioneered the, the kombucha kegerator in stores uh, right here in Middlebury, small co-op. Um, and we put one flavor on, unflavored, it was just a, the base green and, and black tea kombucha. Um, and then started adding flavors from there and growing and growing. And really it was the, it was the kegerator that, that we were pushing. Um, and we got as far as we could on our own with that. It, it becomes complicated, you know. The well, that, no, that, if I can interrupt, that's great because I know from, you know, back in the UK, uh, what they call draft beer is big, obviously, kegerator, you've got very little... Packaging costs, you know, yeah. like a can and bottle. And was it well received in the in the in the co-op? Yeah, it was very well received. Um, co-ops, and you know, probably took about ten years before some of the more conventional stores started adding them as well. But yeah, we we ended up, I think, with close to seven hundred machines that we were operating on our own. Seven hundred kegerators. Yeah. Oh wow. Um, so across the state. Uh, well, that at that time it was probably from Pennsylvania to Maine. Oh, outside? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, East Coast. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, and really, we, we were continuing to do that until um, COVID started and people were afraid to touch surfaces and right. all the foods became problematic. Uh, so that's when we had to pull back on it. 
oh, so it was it, until COVID, until the pandemic, was that the majority of your business? Because you obviously now have cans, bottles. Yeah, no, by that point, it was not the majority of our business, but um, still represented 30%. Huh? Um, yeah, but by that point, we had moved into other packages and had obviously moved out of the farmhouse, gone through uh, another facility before we landed here in Middlebury in a 60,000 square foot uh, beverage facility. And was this custom made for you or was it like a, a space that you retrofitted? Uh, we got fortunate in the fact that a very large cider company, um, one of the first cider companies in the country, uh, started here in Middlebury, partly because of all the, all the apples grown in Vermont. Right. Um, and they had grown up in this building and added on and be, had become a national powerhouse when they decided to build a new facility just up the road. Uh, and we were able to step into this one. and So it had floor drains or whatever you needed. It had, for... it had a lot. That's yeah. great. That's great. So so you've now, well, I, I interrupted you. So you had the kegerator, then COVID hit, but you'd already introduced packaging. So sort of give me a overview today, because I know you've got the, quite a large range in cans and bottles, but you've also got hard kombucha, right? Is that yes. a sister company? Um, Afterglow is our hard kombucha line. Um, it's not a sister company. It's just um, the name of, of the uh, alcoholic line. And we wanted to differentiate it enough and not confuse consumers, so we, we chose to name okay. it separately, but it's still the same company. Uh, all produced here. Yeah, all produced here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, traditional kombucha is alcoholic by nature, uh, so, you know, really, kombucha is an alcoholic drink unless you do something to make it non-alcoholic, so... Uh, part of the reason why we came into this facility um, after having struggled for a long time to consistently produce non-alcoholic kombucha, we made the decision to invest in a spinning cone column. We needed a large facility to house it and to rent, run all the ancillary equipment necessary to to operate it. Um, so that's partly why we landed here and, uh, and it, you know, is an alcohol extraction device. So how does that, I mean, tell me what's the layman's understanding of a spinning cone? Yeah, it's... Um, spins around, I guess. <laughs> well, the, the spinning part is maybe a little deceptive. It's, it's a vacuum distillation machine. So just like water boils at a different temperature on top of a mountain than it does in the valley, okay. ethanol evaporates uh, at a lower temperature than water. And by putting it in a vacuum pressure and changing the atmospheric conditions, you can get the ethanol to turn into vapor at really low temperatures that don't hurt any of the microbes or probiotics okay. in the kombucha. So you, so if I mean I'm a home brewer and I do my primary fermentation, yeah. I bottle it. Sometimes I add flavorings like lavender and then I drink it. Yeah. But you're saying you do the fermentation and then it goes into this. Um, evaporation, low temperature, and the, then, then it's bottled, so it comes out the other end. With I see in your can it says um, uh, verified alcohol extracted, yeah. less than 0.5. So it, it rather uniquely, I guess, then gives the consumer assurance that there's, this isn't going to creep up to anything above 0.5. Yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. And... and I imagine that, so you're one of only a few companies producing kombucha with that technology, is that right? 
Yeah, I, I, I believe there's a less than a handful yeah. of companies using that specific technology. Because it's um, a big investment. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very large investment, yeah. yeah. Um, and it took us a long time to get there. And, you know, interestingly, the, the kombucha and alcohol um, issue that exists in the industry, I, I was extremely front, front stage to that as it mm -hmm. happened. Um, if you look back and read about that, the, the recall that happened in 2010, that was initiated um, by a Whole Foods store in Portland, Maine. Oh, right here. Yeah. Okay, in um, the East Coast. And it was California kombucha that was bubbling, the cap was exploding, and a, a, a uh, Department of Liquor Control officer saw it on a shelf in the Whole Foods and sent it to their labs. And that initiated an investigation with the local alcohol governing agency, the TTB, mm -hmm. and my production facility was probably the closest one to their headquarters. So they came knocking on my door. Mm. Um, and so that was in 2009. It was a good year before the recall. Um, and so it, it definitely altered the course of the growth of our company. Um, and we got to work right away working with microbiologists and um, outsourcing um, with different agencies to figure out how can we solve this problem um, you know, from a, from a microbiological standpoint. How can we do it biologically? And uh, tons and tons of trial and error, lots of issues with getting product tested because there really wasn't any um, proven techniques to verify the alcohol testing on, on kombucha because it's very different than at that beer. low volume at that yeah. low amount right yeah but even not I mean the the technology that exists or what brewers use the hydrometer it just measures the density of the liquid <laughs> minus you know it's from the beginning of the ferment to the end and you do an equation to understand what that conversion of, of sugar to alcohol is <laughs> but because as you know the bacteria is eating the alcohol and turning it into acids you can't use that um, that technique. So that was another very challenging thing was how to overcome even the testing, the lag time between sending product out to get tested. And it's a live beverage, so it's constantly changing. What you what you put in a bottle and sent to the testing lab may have changed dramatically by the time it gets there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was it was a long process, and we did find ways to ferment kombucha um, biologically. To lower alcohol, but it felt like you were really fighting the culture all the time. Fighting because, an battle. Yeah, because it wants to make alcohol. That's what it's mm. doing. Um, so when we finally decided to use the spinning cone, we said, let's let the culture do what the culture wants to do and, and not fight it. Um, and so the kombucha ferments anywhere between one and a half to three percent um, before we uh, extract the alcohol. So when a consumer's, if, if you had to kind of, without going into like, you know, advertising speak, if you had to say what's the benefit of Aquavite kombucha, um, is it, it's fermented, it's authentic, and yet it's, it's um, as it says, it's, it's verified alcohol extraction, but you're saying none of the rest of the benefits are affected. It's not like pasteurization and all that other. Correct. Which would not be kind of a quote authentic kombucha. Correct. Yeah. It, all the microbes, the, the microbes are actually more active. Um, they, they sort of get a 
awoken in the in the process, right? Because they've gone through their fermentation cycle, they're starting to become dormant. You run it through the spinning cone, and wakes them back up. Okay. And so we're able to take the non-alcoholic kombucha coming off of the cone and use that to pitch new batches because the, the culture is so strong. Oh, that's your starter liquid. Then. Yeah. Yeah. But now the afterglow doesn't do, you don't put that near the cone because it, you're, you're sell, what is that, like five to six? It's five percent. Five percent. We do a secondary fermentation to, to um, raise the alcohol on it. Mm. So it's not, um, it's not what we would call our, our base yeah. kombucha. Yeah. Um, and, and so let's just, I, I'm curious about hard kombucha. It seems to be the, the faster growing element of the market. Um, not that kombucha as a whole is saturated because so few people, what is it, two right. or three out of 10 have even tried it. But, yeah. but um, what's, your opinion, what's your view of the market and how are your consumers responding to hard kombucha? Are they a, a different segment like beer drinkers who gravitate to hard kombucha or regular kombucha drinkers who then add hard or? Right now I think it's twofold. I think it's regular kombucha drinkers that are looking to continue um, healthy lifestyle into the evening when they want to hang out with friends. Catch a buzz, yeah. Yeah, catch a buzz. Um, and then I think it's the it's the people that have sort of converted to the hard seltzers uh, that are waking up to the fact that those are really made with pretty poor quality ingredients mm-hmm. um, and that here's something that's made with organic you know, really good ingredients, right? Um, right. And has a delivers a better effect. And now the pandemic hopefully is receding. And I know Vermont's one of the highest vaccinated corners of the country. Uh, and you know, since we've been here, it seems everybody's still conscious of wearing masks. But are you finding that uh, it, it's being sold on tap? Are you able to place uh, hard kombucha into regular? Um, tap rooms or yeah the on-premise sales the selling it in tap rooms is still very challenging for for all industries right now because of the pandemic yeah um more so because all the restaurants are closing because they can't be staffed there's such a labor issue Uh, and i think that's happening around the country but yes we have um just begun kegging um the hard kombucha and seeing demand for it uh consumers are asking for it in restaurants um, people are starting to get sort of IPA fatigue from from beers and are looking for something yeah. different. Yeah, this is great. So, I mean, to wrap this up, where where do you see your company going? And I mean, what do you think? Hopefully, the pandemic will be history within a shorter period of time. Um, where do you think kombucha's future is? And and I, I want to also do justice to how you're, how widely are you available? I mean, I've seen you in a lot of the convenience stores and, and, and health stores around co-ops around Vermont, but outside of Vermont, are you? Uh, I, we're sold right now, I think in about 30 states. Oh, really? Um, and you can find us on the West Coast. We're Great. in California, we're in Oregon, Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, we're continuing to grow and, and build out nationally. Um, yeah. And and I think where kombucha is, is headed um, is that it's going to be in the hands of a lot more people. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and hopefully we'll see younger demographics drinking kombucha and avoiding, avoiding sodas altogether. That's great. Um, and it's also part of the reason that we allow our kombucha to ferment and, and eat up all the sugar 
converted to alcohol, remove the alcohol, so we have much lower sugar content in our kombucha because of that. Right. Um, and it makes it more accessible uh, to people. And so we, we like to see ourselves as an entry-level kombucha uh, for people, and then we have offerings all the way up to the more aggressive drinker as well. So um, I, I think kombucha has a long road ahead of it and is here to stay, and uh, we'll continue to, to convert I mean, there's not a lot of beverage that, you know, fits in sort of that organic, better for you, uh, and kombucha is really the leader, so. Well, this is great. Thanks so much for spending time with me, Jeff. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Booch News. For more about kombucha, please visit boochnews.com.